Jesus, that this morning that the invitation is open to come to the cross. The cross where you lay down your life for us, where your blood was shed so that we might know forgiveness of sins. You, Jesus, were the perfect sacrifice, the once for all. You died for the sins of the world. And we remember that this morning and we celebrate that this morning in anticipation of your resurrection. That you overcame sin and death and hell itself when you were raised from the dead to prove once and for all everything you said was true, who you said you were was true. And we praise you this morning. We give you honor and glory. We exalt your holy name. We proclaim your worthiness. And we're grateful for the privilege of prayer and that Jesus, when you died, that veil in the temple that separated the people from the most holy place was ripped apart from top to bottom, telling us we can now, Father, enter into your very presence, into the throne room where we find mercy and grace and help in our time of need because of what Jesus has done for us. We do so reverently, we do so thankfully, and we do so because we know we need to come to you. We need to come to you and say, thank you, Lord God, for all that you have done and are doing in our lives right now. We are so blessed in so many ways. Even in the midst of life's worst circumstances, we who know Jesus can find something in our lives to say, thank you, Lord God, for... Sometimes it's a fact that we know that even in those moments, you are there with us. Because you have promised that you never leave us or forsake us. You are ever-present help in times of trouble. And as, as we think of that this morning, we recognize our deep need for you to intervene, to, to, to invade the circumstances of our lives. Many of us carry burdens this morning. Some for others. Some for the circumstances we ourselves are doing. We thank you, God, that you are willing to be involved in our lives in whatever circumstance we may be dealing with. In fact, Father, you want to show yourself strong in those places where we are weak. You want to provide for us when we are doing without. You want to heal that which no one else can bring healing to. You want to strengthen us when we are weak. You want to encourage us when we are down. You want to comfort us 
when we breathe. You want to protect us when we take those steps out into the unknown, into those areas where we are uncomfortable and maybe afraid. We praise you that you are faithful in all those ways. And we know there are needs here in this place this morning. Needs for healing. Whether it be physical, because we know some are in need of that. Emotional, because we know some are in need of that. Some are dealing with grief and loss right now. Spiritual. Father, maybe you have told us today, maybe there's something your Holy Spirit has been speaking to us about. We, we know that we need to do business with you. Maybe we need to confess sin to you this morning. Maybe we're praying for someone else who doesn't know Jesus yet, but are praying that they will come to know Jesus as you reach out to them through your provenient grace and draw them to yourself. We thank you, Father, that you are faithful to do all those things and more in our lives. We thank you for the truth of your word and that it is so readily available to us. Father, my prayer is that our Bibles will never get dusty sitting on the shelf or on the coffee table or by the bedside. But Father, we will love your word, be people of your word, know your word, live your word. And that you would speak to us again today. And that you would anoint me, I pray, as I bring the word. Speak to our hearts. I pray, Father, today that we would be people of prayer. I pray that we would be people with a heart, a passion for the lost. I pray that we would be people, Father, who are willing to be uncomfortable and sacrificed, to be obedient to your call on our lives. I pray that we will believe you for good things in the future of the long month. I pray today for our country. It seems like weekly we hear of something else that's suffering. We look at the tendency as a people to look at a lot of things as answers or solutions to our problem, but at heart, Father, I think we understand it's we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need the peace that only Jesus can bring. We need the purpose in life that only Jesus can bring. We need the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. We need the hope that only Jesus can bring. And so, Father, we pray for revival in our land. We pray that the hearts of the people will be turned once again to you. There will be a people who seek to honor you and obey you. That the truth of Scripture would be the guide for our lives. I pray, Father, today that 
we as followers of Jesus Christ, especially in this season of the year when I think at least people have an idea of what Easter's about, that we would take opportunity to share with people who Jesus is, why He came, why He died, and that it is true that He did rise again and lives eternally. Lord God, there there are times when it just seems that the opportunities are, are prime and may we be sensitive to the leadership of your Holy Spirit and faithful when you're put your thumb in our backs and say now is the time to speak of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Lord God, we love you today. We thank you for the many blessings we enjoy at your hand, the beauty of this day, the incredible variety of creation and Lord God, for the warmth of the body of Christ and the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to come and meet with us whenever two of us or two or three of us are gathered in your name. For music and the ability to worship you through song. For the love that we have for one another as Christ followers. And may that love characterize who we are. May unity characterize who we are. May gratitude characterize who we are. And Lord God, may we, because of those things that flow out of us, be salt and light in a needy world. We love you, Lord. We exalt your holy name. We magnify you. We honor you. And we pray these things this morning in the strong name of Jesus our Savior and Lord. Amen. The scripture this morning is Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And it's a busy time in Jesus' life. And it's an exciting time in Jesus' life. It's also a time where we see how quickly things can change. Um, But I will start as he's approaching Jerusalem for his final week of his natural life. It says, oh, yes, please stand for the reading of God's word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, the word of the Lord. As we sing the wonderful cross, and it's an Isaac Watts um, hymn, When I Survey, with a little uh, different ending. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt
This morning, I've got a bit of nostalgia for you, and there is a point to this. I want to let you know that. Here you are, Sheriff. Hello, Cavendish. Didn't think you'd catch him, partner. Now we got the whole dang bunch. You and your men are to be congratulated, Sheriff. Thanks. But if it hadn't been for you, we'd have gotten nowhere. I'll be with you in just a minute. I'll take care of this one personally. Come on. Either silver. Now, Cavendish can't catch it, Kimasabi. You take off mask. I'm going to continue to wear the mask and keep my identity a secret. For how long? Our job has just begun. We have a lot of trails to follow. That good. Sheriff. Before the lockup, do you mind telling me who the masked man is? Wouldn't mind at all, except that... Hey, where'd the masked man go? He and his Indian pal are going out to get the horses, Sheriff. Well, I guess he isn't one to stick around for a party. But who is he? I don't rightly know his real name, but I've heard him called the Lone Ranger. Well, I didn't know anybody would ever get blessed by the Lone Ranger, but I remember as a kid watching the Lone Ranger, and I thought he was cool because, you know, he rode that white horse, he was good with a gun, and because he was kind of mysterious. I showed you this because of the thing about, who is that masked man? Nobody really knew. Well, Tonto knew, but he was about the only one. He would appear out of nowhere and save the day and then leave before anyone could properly thank him. Those who had been rescued by or apprehended by the Lone Ranger's cunning and daring would inevitably ask as he rode off into the sunset, who was that masked man? Well, it turns out that the Lone Ranger may have been based on a real person a man named Bass Reeves. Anybody ever heard of Bass Reeves before? Reeves was a deputy marshal in the south central U.S. after the Civil War in the mid to late 1800s. Like the legendary Lone Ranger, Reeves was a master of disguises which he used to hunt bad guys while accompanied by a Native American. He rode a white horse, and while he didn't use silver bullets... He did hand out silver coins as a personal trademark of sorts. He was also such a good shot that he was banned from entering shooting competitions. But, unlike the TV Lone Ranger, Reeves was an African-American. 
He was, in fact, the first African-American deputy marshal, prompting many, no doubt, to ask, Who is this? On the day we call Palm Sunday, the day we refer to as the day referred to as the triumphal entry, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and is hailed by the crowds that line the way. He was admired. He was honored. He was esteemed. And yet, I think he was a bit of a mystery to the crowd that day. There were some who thought they knew who this is and others who asked, who is this? But I would say that the vast majority of those present on that day did not really know who Jesus was. But the evidence revealed who he was. See, the opening verses of our text today tell us that Jesus sent his disciples into the village to retrieve a donkey and, his, and its colt on which Jesus would ride into the city on the colt that day in keeping with a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it speaks to this very incident. And, and Dean read that uh, prophecy for you today as he read our scripture passage to us. Think about the mass of people who were present on that day. Almost all were Jews. This was the time of the Passover, so they had made what we would call an annual migration to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Some lived in the area while others had come from far and wide to celebrate. And, and because of that, most of these folks knew the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the prophets, the poetry. So many in the crowd of Jews that day knew the prophecy of Isaiah as written in chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 of the, of the words that Isaiah recorded. And it says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim the, that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. And some at the roadside that day may have been present when Jesus himself quoted this scripture and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And yet they interpreted it differently than Jesus intended it. In Isaiah again, chapter 43, it says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Looking forward to what Jesus would do. Isaiah 59, 20, again speaking of the Messiah, looking forward to the time when Jesus would come and the work he would do. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sins, says the Lord. And yet that's not what they were thinking of, was it? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the instances of Jesus healing the paralytic and telling him that his sins were forgiven. 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law think to themselves, only God can forgive sins. Clue. Giant clue. Jesus was saying, I am God and this is why I have come. Luke 7 tells us that after being anointed with perfume by a sinful woman, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the guests in the house say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? See, Jesus did what only God can do. His entire ministry from his teaching and preaching to the miracles he performed, pointed to the fact that he was the long-expected Messiah. However, when they thought of the Messiah, they failed to consider the prophecy concerning the Messiah recorded in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 that told them he would be a suffering servant. But that's not what they wanted. No, the crowd cheered Jesus that day for who they wanted him to be. They cheered Jesus for who they wanted him to be. The Jews found themselves under Roman oppression. There were heavy taxes, restrictions, numerous executions by means of crucifixion, And maybe most disturbing to them was the fact that they were being ruled by pagan Gentiles. Intolerable. Someone has written, the Jews were in search of someone. They desired a king, a conqueror, someone to set them free. They had seen the mighty works of this man, Jesus. They were witness to him restoring sight to the blind. They had seen the evidence of him healing the lame. They saw him feed the multitude with a little boy's lunch and had leftovers to spare. They heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. They listened to him teach with authority. Surely with power and authority like that, Jesus was without a doubt the one who would set them free from their Roman oppressors. So, Jesus came to Jerusalem that day, and the crowds began to cheer. Finally, here he is. The timing seemed right. It was approaching the Passover feast, that great festival, festival that celebrated the event where the death angel had passed over Egypt. And Pharaoh let God's people go. And now, just maybe, Jesus would somehow lead them from the restraints and cruel treatment they received from the Roman occupiers. That is what we want. That's why we're cheering today. And so, we we read the passage from Matthew today, from John chapter 12, verse 13. It says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, many 
People spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Oh, that thing about David. Now, Jesus was predicted to come in the line of David, but when they thought of David, they thought of the greatest king they'd ever had. He was also the greatest warrior they'd ever had. Victory after victory over the enemies, the physical enemies of Israel. That gives us a clue to what they were thinking that day. And they said, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, it's a Hebrew expression meaning save. Which became an exclamation of praise over the years. But see, they were thinking, save us from our Roman conquerors. Not save us from our sins. They were thinking, save us from death by sword or crucifixion. Not save us from the fear of death. They were thinking, save us from the oppression of a cruel government. Not save us from the oppression of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, actually on the foal of a donkey. Kings at that time and culture rode horses when they went to war or when they returned as conquering heroes. When when a king came in peace, he rode on a donkey. In this case, Jesus rode on the foal of a donkey, a beast that had never been ridden before. Perhaps to say that Jesus now came on a one-time mission of peace that had never before been attempted and would never again be attempted. So as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the the crowds waved palm branches, a long-standing symbol of Jewish nationalism. And they shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, cheering, praising, exalting. But then as Dean made reference to, as he read this morning, kind of as a preamble, that would all change just a few days later the cheering would stop. The cheering would become jeering. See, the the events of the crucifixion that would take place in just a few days indicate that Jesus and the crowds who hailed him during the triumphal entry had two different visions, two different understandings of his mission. Jean A. Smith, an American historian, authored a book entitled, When the Cheering Stopped. The book told of Woodrow Wilson and the events surrounding World War I. Upon the end of the war, people were optimistic. They believed that the last war that would ever take place had been fought. The dream was that the world had at last been made safe and the way had been paved for democracy and freedom everywhere. When Woodrow Wilson paid his first visit to Europe, he was greeted by large crowds, and he was cheered every place he went. 
In many people's eyes, he was more popular than the greatest war heroes throughout the land. He was viewed as an icon of hope. In all, the cheering lasted about a year. Then it began to stop. The political leaders throughout Europe were interested more in their own agendas than in a lasting peace. And the people slowly lost hope. On the home front, Wilson met opposition in the Senate and his League of Nations was never ratified. Under tremendous stress, his health began to fail. In the next election, his party lost. Woodrow Wilson, who almost two years earlier was hailed as a hero, came to his last days as a broken and defeated man. Jesus was cheered and then rejected by the same ones who had cheered him. Jesus, the son of a carpenter, raised in Nazareth, who had gained favor with the people, who was cheered and praised, would soon be mocked, scorned, cast aside, and nailed to the cross by the same ones who had done the cheering. He was not who they wanted him to be. In his song, Ride On to Die, Michael Card writes of Christ's journey to the cross. Sense the sorrow untold as you look down the road at the clamoring crowd drawing near. Feel the heat of the day as you look down the way. Hear the shouts of Hosanna the King. O daughter of Zion, your time's drawing near. Don't forsake him. Oh, don't pass it by on the full of a donkey. As the prophets had said, passing by you, he rides on to die. Soon the thorn-cursed ground will bring forth a crown, and this Jesus will seem to be beaten. But he'll conquer alone, both the shroud and the stone, and the prophecies will be completed. O daughter of Zion, your time's drawing near. Don't forsake him, O don't pass it by. On the foal of a donkey, as the prophets had said, passing by you, he rides on to die. Jesus would ride into Jerusalem as a king, but one lowly, full of humility, and ready to give his life as a sacrifice for his people. Jesus would be Israel's shepherd king who would become himself the Passover lamb. See, Jesus would wear a crown, but it would be a crown of thorns. Jesus would wear a royal robe, but it would be a robe meant for ridicule after his body had been beaten and bruised for our iniquities. Jesus would stretch his hands forth in power, but it would be hands that would be impaled by Roman nails. Jesus would be lifted up, but it would not be on a human throne, but on the cross of redemption called Calvary. People cheered them, cheered Jesus that day, for who they wanted him to be. And I think it's interesting that 
as you read through this passage of Scripture, as we get to the end, then we come across that question. As, as they entered Jerusalem, it said that many in the crowd said, Who is this? You know, people still want to know, Who is this? People still want to know, Who is this? Look at, look at um, the last verse in this passage we read today. Well, let's look at verse 10 and 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet, from Nazareth in Galilee. Even those who thought they knew didn't know. Jesus was much more than a prophet. If we look back into Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 28, verses 27 and 28, we find these words. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say that you're one of the other prophets. Let's see. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And after the disciples responded that way, Jesus asked them this question. But who do you say that I am? That's the same question we must answer. For only when we know the correct answer can we answer those who ask us, who is this Jesus? You know, there are lots of opinions. People think they know. Some still say, well, Jesus was a prophet. Some say, well, he was a, a great teacher. Some say, well, he was a good man. Some say, well, he was just this interesting historical figure. Some may even say that he is God. But what kind of God is he? Well, I think a lot of people think that he's the kind of God who shows up when we need him and then stays out of our life the rest of the time. That's the kind of God we want. When I yell, help, Jesus, come a-running. But the rest of the time, leave me alone. I want to do my own thing. Who is this? There's a lot of opinions, aren't there? Can we tell them? Can we tell them who Jesus is? Can we testify to the fact that He is holy God? Can we tell them that He is creator God? Can we tell them that He is merciful God? That He is gracious God? That He is loving God? That He is the Lamb of God? That He is the only perfect sacrifice? Can we tell them that He is Savior and Redeemer? Can we tell them that He is risen Lord? Do we know who this is? 
And are we ready to tell others? There's a lot of opinions. There are people out there every day asking, who is this? Just like the crowd that day. There's a lot of people who think they know. Are we ready to tell them who this is? I think this is an opportune time. We're celebrating the resurrection of this same Jesus next Sunday morning. It's an opportune time. And listen, when God calls you to go to someone and tell them who this is, believe me, he's, worked, he's been at work there already. He wouldn't call you to go to them if he weren't. He's been preparing their hearts. And listen, don't be disappointed if they don't respond by, respond by falling on their knees and accepting Christ on the spot. It's okay. Someone told me once, in God's economy, there are neither success nor failure. There's only obedience. We leave the results in God's We just do what He told us. Do we know who this is? And are we ready? That's the question that lays before us this morning. And a recognition of that, and a reminder of that this morning, I'd like those who will be serving communion Get ready and come. And as soon as you are, just go ahead and come forward and begin distributing the elements. Just a reminder, in the Church of the Nazarene, you not, need not be a member to partake of communion. Please hold the elements and we will partake together. I want to share with you this morning an additional passage of scriptures from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And it reads like this. Paul writes, in, in those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises of God. Uh, the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to a Gentile people. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in His own body, on the cross, He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. One new people who are Christians, Christians. We are all together in this thing. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of Jesus' death on the cross and our hostility hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Imagine coming to the Lord's Supper only to find a wall erected in the sanctuary between the pews and the altar. 
Paul reminds believers that once there was a wall keeping them from the presence of God. That wall was there because God is holy. And sin separates from God. Sin always leads to separation. Archaeologists have uncovered an inscription from the outer wall of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. The temple which was destroyed by the Roman army in 70 A.D. It carries a stern warning from the high priest. And it said this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Foreigners, that's us. The Jewish temple was full of partitions. There was the inner court of the priests and the temple proper containing the holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant stood. Access was limited to these sacred places to select Jewish priests and only the high priest was allowed once a year on the Day of Atonement to enter the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. There were other divisions, the women's court and the outer court of the Gentiles, granting limited access to the sacred places within. Jesus came to remove all barriers. In verse 14, 15, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barriers, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And then because of what Jesus did on the cross, we also read again in verses 13 and 18, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Matthew 10:51 records that at the very moment Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That barrier outside the holy place where the presence of God resided, that huge curtain which stood as a constant reminder of the law with its commandments and regulations and a reminder of our sin because of our failure to keep the law was ripped asunder through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Through his body and his blood, the wall of separation was broken down. Jesus came to bring us to God. That's what they missed on that day in Jerusalem. Jesus came to bring us to God, to declare us righteous and make us acceptable in the sight of the Father. People try to scale the wall of separation by doing good. Oh, if I can just do enough good things. But God calls self-effort futile. We vainly attempt 
to clothe ourselves with holiness, but we end up with what the prophet Isaiah called filthy rags. Others try to convince themselves that there is no wall. They deny the reality of sin. Yet the wall stands and and will remain unless we trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. It is the power of the cross and only the cross that tears down the wall of sin and separation. Isn't it a joy and comfort to know that today, because of Jesus, because of what he has done for us on the cross, we can come to the Lord's table freely, without fear and without barriers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, For I received from the Lord what I also...